We are uh, well into the 40 days of generosity. And uh, as you are receiving the emails morning by morning, I hope that they're encouraging you and that you're having fun with just being generous or showing the generosity um, of our faith in these 40 days of Lent. Um, we're tracking with many, many other churches who are also embarking on this journey. And uh, we're looking at the characteristics of the early church in Acts. Um, we saw that they were a brave lot. Uh, when they were scourged um, and forbidden to talk about Jesus, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy of having shame for um, being followers of Jesus. Uh, they were a church that was united. They, they had a commitment to one another and to lovely fellowship and, and care as they were blossoming in the heady early days of the Christian faith. Today we're going to look at um, a passage in Acts chapter 6, um, where we find what was actually the beginning of the, the office or the role of deacons in a church. Um, so various times um, we were in a church and our kids were, were teenagers and uh, for some reason deacons' kids and preachers' kids got a bad reputation. So my kids basically set out to confirm that that was true. So when people in church saw my kids hang out with deacon's kids, they said, oh, that is, that is really trouble. David, you're a preacher's kid. You know all about this, right? Deacon's kids, preacher's kids. This is where the deacons started. And today we're going to have a look at how they emerged. And then there's just a little lesson for us, I think, as we carry on ourselves. It says, during this time, as the disciples were increasing in numbers by leaps and bounds, Hard feelings developed among the Greek-speaking believers, Hellenists, toward the Hebrew-speaking believers because their widows were being discriminated against in the daily food lines. So the Twelve called a meeting of the disciples. They said, it wouldn't be right for us to abandon our responsibilities for preaching and teaching the word of God to help with the care of the poor. So, friends, choose seven men from among you whom everyone trusts, men full of the Holy Spirit and good sense, and we'll assign them this task. Meanwhile, we'll stick to our assigned tasks of prayer and preaching God's word. The congregation thought this was a great idea. They went ahead and chose Stephen, a man full of faith and Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. Then they presented them to the apostles, praying the apostles laid on hands and commissioned them to their task. So the church was in some turmoil. It was growing really quickly. And even though they were committed to some great functions and responsibilities to care for one another as a community, uh, apparently something was just going awry in the daily distribution of food. So the care of widows had always been in Judaism and then into Christianity, a high priority. Um, widows and orphans are on God's list of people who are to be taken care of by God's people. And so this dispute arose between the Hellenists and the Hebrew um, folks and their widows. So here's the situation. You have those who are Palestinian, um, who are Hebrew-speaking, and you have those who are Hellenists who have come from all around the empire who are Greek-speaking. Those who come from the different parts of, of the, the empire are very devout Jews. 
um, they have made the effort of the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Pentecost, which is when they came to know Christ by the Holy Spirit. Um, and they sort of looked down their noses a little bit at the Hebrew-speaking uh, Jews who already lived there and maybe weren't as diligent in the view of the Hellenists as they, the Hellenists, were. So there was this little breach um, that might all of a sudden begin to gape, and it did, around the care of the widows. And the text seems to indicate that indeed there was some discrimination. So some were being well looked after, and some were being somehow or other neglected. So what happened was that people came and reported this to the apostles, and they did what often happens in churches, where people come and say, I've noticed this problem, or I've noticed this opportunity, you should do something about it. And when conversations start like that, I, I know that the you should do something about it is, is going to happen. So usually I will say, um, well, why don't you do something about it? Well, because you're the pastor, or you're the elders, so you should do something about it. Well, how can we help you do something about it? I might have told you about a, a friend of ours who for actually three years in a row in our church in Toronto said, we should start an out-of-the-cold program. And so when Ed would come, uh, the first time he came and said that to me, I said, yeah, I think we should. So a few weeks later, he came back and he said, I, th I thought you were going to start a, an out-of-the-cold program. I said, oh, you did? I, I, I thought you were going to start it. Oh, but a year later, he came to me and he said, you know, we really should have an out-of-the-cold program. I said, I agree. A year later, he came and he said, I'm going to start an out-of-the-cold program. And he did. And he recruited people who were not really involved in a lot of other things. And it was a great success. But it was one of those, somebody saw a need and said, you should do something about this. And it's better to turn it back and say, well, who could do something about this? If it is something that we agree. So here was a ministry that was necessary. The care of the widows was at the heart of the Christian community. And there was a legitimate problem. And so it was reported to the apostles. And I think it was reported sort of like you should do something about it. Now, the apostles were not saying that's beneath us. So it's not as though they were saying, are you kidding? Don't you, don't you know that we are the teachers of the scriptures and we are the leaders of the church? They just said, um, it, it just doesn't seem that it would be right for us to leave our assigned responsibility of teaching and prayer. So, and then what happens after that is not only the beginning of a typical structure of church government, but it is the way the church grows laterally instead of hierarchically. So the apostles say, all right, here's what we suggest you do. Find seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and, and um, let's appoint them to this task. So the congregation thought that was a brilliant idea, and they went ahead and did it. So highlighted in yellow is just the situation. Their widows were being discriminated against in the daily food lines. And so the apostles say, So friends, choose seven men from among you whom everyone trusts, men full of the Holy Spirit and good sense, and we'll assign them for this task. And so the congregation thought it's a great idea, and were given the names of those who were selected as the first deacons of the church. They were not selected to be officers of the church, the way it has sort of migrated down through time. 
So many churches will have offices, the offices of elders and the offices of deacons, and they talk about how those two boards function and so on. Well, this is the beginning of all of that. But more than being a model for church government, I think it's the way that a movement grows that we're taught about here. And the way that a movement grows, I think, has some characteristics that we can identify in this particular development of the the movement of the Church of Jesus Christ. The way movements grow is, first of all, when we respond to needs and opportunities. So a need, opportunity presented itself, and rather than wring their hands and say, that's terrible, we're not sure what to do about that, uh, the apostles identified that, that that need would give them the opportunity to grow something. And we might say to grow something laterally, not, not something that we you know, tuck under them and put committees under them and task forces under them. But basically, they, they said, let's, let's respond to those needs and opportunities in this way. Let's, let's go wide instead of, you know, dig down and, and find and see who's in place, what committee, what, what task force there is that could help us take care of this. Um, but we do get opportunities that come our way um, by needs that indicate to us some way or another that God would like to grow a church. So here we are as we have made our move onto Main Street. And in essence, we've spent a year getting ourselves organized here We had a vision from the Lord about being here among the people of this town. Um, I found a lovely piece of land off on some other road that I thought would be great. And when I came back and talked to you all about it, you just said no. But it was a lovely piece of land. We could have built a big church with room for all kinds of programs. But what I heard back was no. We are supposed to be in the town of Milton at the center. We're supposed to be at the center of the life of Milton. And so here we were, and our good friends from the Baptist church that have gone over to Teatro um, said to us, we think you should be buying this. And we said, well, let's pray about that. And we did. And our elders, first of all, had a resonance with that and said, yes, we think we should. We think we're supposed to be here. And so here we are, and we are at a walk-past building instead of a drive-into building from a busy, busy street where we have thousands of people who just walk past, um, whereas a few dozen people might walk past. Many dozens of cars would drive past. So there came this opportunity for us, and so we, we got all of our resources together, and we made the move. And Easter Sunday, we moved in upstairs, and then a week or two later, we moved down here, and we're good to go. But now, we have to consider the opportunities that are freshly ours because of being here. We have, I believe, curried favor with our neighbors. We have curried favor with the downtown business improvement area. Uh, folks know that we're here. And so day by day, as we hang out near the windows, they come and they cup their hands and look in until they see us. And then they're embarrassed that they're looking and trying to see what this is, and and that's great stuff. But I believe that the Lord has something for us to do that is a strategic core um, that we need to discern and respond to. And likely it is to do with needs and opportunities around us. 
one of the ways that the Lord has blessed us is with the Goods for Nothing store downstairs. And we have favor with folks in town because that's something that is a need that we're able to address. The way churches grow, I think, is that they begin to look around for needs and opportunities. They, they don't buy a book that has all of the programs that you need to have to be successful. They look around and they ask, well, what is the opportunity? And problems don't stand as problems. They stand as ways for us to respond as the Church of Jesus Christ. So the apostles weren't daunted by this. They didn't say, let's, let's, let's examine what has gone wrong here. I mean, but bring in all the leaders and let's dispute with them um, the organization of the food lines for the widows. Um, but they said there, there is a need here which is an opportunity. Ah, it's an opportunity for others. And I, I think it became an opportunity for people who were in God's plan to be the future in the movement of the church. So when we look at the people who are on the list, we actually now recognize them, whereas they were simply recruited at the beginning on the basis of the way that the apostles said they should be sorted. And then we find that one becomes the first martyr of the church and is a powerful witness. Another becomes a great evangelist of the church, and the church moves on. The movement grows because they responded to needs and opportunities. Second thing of three that I noticed there is that movements grow when we recruit qualified personnel. Recruit qualified personnel. What does that mean? What sorts of people are the qualified personnel? Well, I think it's often not what we think. So one thing is very curious is that those who were recruited were Greek, right? They weren't Hebrew. So there was wisdom in the way that this all worked. But the apostles said, um, find seven men who qualify. And the way that they qualified um, was quite interesting. So as I search on the web, every organization has three C's, um, which are the keys to their organization. The problem is they're not always the same three. Um, and there are three C's that we have operated with quite often, um, and I think they adhere to the story here and that the qualifying of these deacons was according to these three C's. The first C is character. And the most important thing um, about finding qualified personnel is the character of those folks. The next one is chemistry, and the next one is competence. But it's in that order. Character you can't train for, right? Character comes already built in, bundled in. Um, competency can be learned, and chemistry is an interesting one in the middle of that little sandwich. How does a movement grow? It grows by responding to opportunities, often showing their existence as needs. Movements grow when people are brought alongside, and they are proven to be qualified for the responsibilities that they're being asked to undertake. Choose seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit, good reputation, and later on in Timothy, we find a list of how these qualifications were actually spelled out in the early church. But the first thing, the most important thing is character. And if we look at our world today, um, 
what is the thing that is the elephant in the room? It's the lack of character, isn't it? It's the lack of morality. It's the lack of ethics. And we, we search sometimes in vain for a person of character where we say this is something that has, has come with this person through their lives, has been developed, has been learned, has been gained by the experience of their lives and the quality of their soul, the quality of their inner person. So when, when we come to this situation here, the apostles don't say, well, it's going to be very important that we get a good organizer in this. So who are the great organizers around here? Who, who, who are, are there some like office managers we can tap on the shoulder or people that have proven that they can run a, an organization like a food bank or something like that? That didn't matter in the first instance. They were simply saying, find people of character. And I would suggest to you that in any of our efforts to start something or to continue something or to staff something, the very first place to start and the place where the, the great bulk of the consideration needs to be given is the person's character. What, what is this person made of? What's inside when you peel back the layers? And uh, sometimes you have, to, you have to work really hard to, to discern that. You may need to be talking to other folks and, and say, we're, we're thinking of so-and-so for a, a role in, in our church movement or our business or our school or something. And, you know, we've, we've seen the, the CV, we've seen the, the experience, but what we really want to know is what this person's character is like. Because if a person is going to tank, it may not at all be overcompetence. I mean, maybe they just can't do the job, and at the end of the day, you have a pleasant or difficult conversation, and you look across the table and you say, you know what, I don't think you can do this. Do you think you can, or do you think you can learn to? And maybe the person says, nah, I don't think I can do it. Well, the world does not look at that with dismay, whereas the world does look with dismay at someone who fails morally or ethically because their character wasn't good. So competence is not the deal. And many times I've been involved in bringing someone along who didn't necessarily have the qualifications around ability, but something about their character said, this person is going to stick with this and this person is going to be teachable. This person is, is going to work for us. The second C in my set of three is the word chemistry. And interestingly here, the chemistry was, was considered as Greek candidates alone were, were brought into the room. So they would have had chemistry with the Hellenist Jews and the Hellenist widows and didn't have to cover the distance between, oh, well, you're part of the problem. Why are they making you part of the solution? The chemistry was the right kind of thing. And chemistry is not very measurable. Right? It's sitting in a room with somebody and trying to decide whether something is working here or not. That chemistry is good here or chemistry is not good here. Um, I, I keep on dissing Brian, so I'll, I don't know if he's listening to these or not. I think he's just on the deck watching alligators. But um, chemistry with Brian is, was really good for us around here, right? Because he just, I, it's hard to find anybody who doesn't like Brian. I hate that, <laughs> right? 
But chemistry is, chemistry is being able to talk to somebody soul to soul about deep and important things and know that tomorrow you're going to come back and keep going along that same, that same track. It's not, it's not being afraid. It is, it is the development of trust to the point that you would say, I, I will give this over to you. I'm not interested in seeing what you do because I know you. So character and then chemistry. And then competence is obviously on the table. You, you, you have to either be able to do the job or learn how to do the job. But we live in a world where we, at least now, certainly our millennials know, that they're not going to learn at school everything they need to know to do the job that they will be doing 10 years or 20 years or 30 years from now. We have all figured that out by virtue of the fact that we did our training and then things did change and continues to change. But now they change so much that competency takes a second place to something like character because character um, will give me the drive to learn new things, different things, to cooperate differently in, in a relationship where there's, there's good chemistry. So if it sounds like I'm just doing like a Harvard Business Review survey here, maybe so, but it's just very interesting that that's exactly how this fell out in the early church. An opportunity was demonstrated by a need, and so they went after qualified personnel on these three criteria. What is their character? Are they full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom? Um, let's have Hellenists do it because their chemistry is going to work, and let's let them d develop the program. So they did develop the program, and by all appearances, the, everything settled down and everyone was taken care of. The third thing, and final thing, is that we release control. Um, so sometimes what happens is somebody asks you to do something, and then they tell you you will have um, you know, full freedom to do whatever you want, however you want to do it. And then you do something in a way that they didn't expect you would do, so they call you in. And you say, but you told me that I would have you know, complete freedom about this. Um, I don't see the apostles second-guessing the decisions of the deacons, right? We, we don't have another episode where somebody comes and says, you know what, those widows, just like we told you, they're being neglected still. And those seven guys, they're over having coffee or drinking beers at the arms. I don't know what they're doing. But none of that happens. The dust settles. Ministry continues. And in fact, those deacons, by having been given this responsibility, which they might early on have said, that, that's kind of a tedious, menial job. But they didn't because they responded spiritually to the opportunity and what they did with small things, perhaps we would say, led them to a place of being trusted with big things. And so you find those two that we know a lot about and then the others that we presume similarly were used by God in the, the building of the church. Um, but the apostles did not second guess. They trusted them. They knew that if their character was right, their competence would fall in place behind that, that character. And so giving people permission is very important. Reporting is also very important. But what we want to do as we continue to sort of frame our, our culture 
um, is that we want to be cheerleaders, not permission givers. So I, I don't like when people come and ask me for permission um, because I'm not the head of the church. Jesus is. And if he tells you to do something, I better not dare tell you not to, right? So I may, I may press back and say, wow, are you sure that, that, that the Lord is prompting you to do that? Does anybody else want to do it? I mean, have you got some people who want to come and, and help you? And by the way, there were seven of these. So sending people in teams is much wiser than sending people as individuals. So this team of seven with good character, great chemistry, became competent, and the apostles were able to trust them entirely and to be cheerleaders, not permission givers for them. Um, it's said that the relationship when someone is given an opportunity is either one thing or the other. It's either high control and low accountability or high accountability and low control and that we should choose high accountability and low control every time. If I know that I can trust you, if I know that I can call you in on character, I can trust you with anything that you take on as a responsibility. You don't need to tell me what you're doing. You don't need to defend what you're doing. But if I notice something about your character, you need to be ready to be called in and to be brought up on the carpet immediately over character because character will kill you. Competence won't necessarily. So high accountability where there is a trust relationship and you know you could talk about anything. Um, and then low control. Because the reason you were selected by the Lord to take on this opportunity is that you are able to do it by your gifting, by your personality, by your um, preferences and so on, and not me. So I don't want to stick handle the details, but I do want to hold you accountable and for you to hold me accountable as well on the matters that count. So how does a movement grow? How does a movement like this grow? Well, we look for the opportunities, and then we look for the people, and guess what? You are those people, right? And, and then we say, go for it, and let's see how God blesses and multiplies the things that you undertake to do. My friend Ed, um, who began the Out of the Cold program, led a thriving, thriving ministry, and to my knowledge, it's still continuing on. At a time when very few churches were providing out-of-the-cold ministry in Toronto, he joined up, and to my delight, he found people that I had tried to recruit for things, and they said no to me, but they said no to him, or said yes to him. Um, I tested his character over the period of three years when he kept asking when I was going to start it, um, and then with an ability to trust him, we were able to say, go for it. And let us know what you're doing, but don't ask us for permission, right? Just be accountable to us, personally accountable, and do what God has called you to do. So are you in a spot where you um, are responsible for noticing opportunities, looking for people to be involved in those opportunities? I just commend to you the Bible as a great textbook and workbook about almost anything, but certainly in terms of understanding dynamic organization, that is what the church is. Um, the church has lasted longer than, I don't know, any other organization, has it? Thousands of years, it's still going. Does it have trouble? Yeah, 
Is it hard? Yeah. But it's still going. Because I think there's some principles and there's some spirit-inspired dynamics um, that are important for us. Father, we pray that you will uh, continue to give us favor on this street. We pray that you will give us uh, eyes to notice opportunities. And we pray, Father, that you will help us to, to garner our resources and to call out to one another um, to know how to team up and um, respond as gospel people in, in a broken and corrupted world. In Jesus' name.